Even psychopaths have emotions if you dig deep enough. But then again, maybe they don't. Do you have emotions, Richard? No comment. Tell me what kind of emotions you got going through you right now. I'll tell you what, I gave up on love and happiness a long time ago. Disclaimer. In this chapter, we will be telling the story of notorious serial killer Richard Ramirez, also known as the Night Stalker. The details of his crimes include murder, sexual assault, and crimes against children. This chapter may be triggering for some listeners. This will be the only warning. Please do not listen if you are sensitive to this topic. So hey everyone. This week, I decided to cover Richard Ramirez, and I can't say I decided because um, one of the more challenging parts that I didn't anticipate of having a podcast is trying to decide what stories to cover and when to cover them. I wanted to do a serial killer, but I wasn't sure which one to do, so I asked my daughter, not this daughter, but my older daughter, just to pick one, and Richard Ramirez is the one that she threw at me, so here we go. First, she offered the Green River Killer, but I said, I dips that. Which I was glad, because (laughs) that is an enormous case, and my episodes seem to be long and um packed full with way too much information and I feel like Green River would take me 17 episodes to yeah. cover. And I'll I'll fit it into a two-parter at most three-parter. Yeah. At most. Oh, you're also a journalist, so you're used to sticking to the facts and cutting out the long narratives that I Long narratives. Yeah, it's just like short shorter sentences, really. <laughs> and I just don't do that. So Both entertaining in their own ways. I think so. Let's get into it. All right. So uh, this story begins over half a century ago now. Richard Ramirez was born on February 29th, 1960. So that's a leap year in El Paso, Texas. Um, He was born to a Mexican immigrant couple. He is the youngest of five children. The family has quite the turbulent life. So they lived in several different areas, many of which had quite high levels of industrial pollution. Some of his siblings, actually it said all of his siblings, have been born with birth defects of some kind. Birth defects? Like what? From what I read, they range from respiratory issues to actual bone uh, deformities. Weird. Yeah, I don't know the exacts, but yeah, all of them have something wrong with him. Um, So obviously this family had some challenges. His father, Julian, uh, was beaten extensively by his own father and his grandfather, which made him quiet and withdrawn. He vowed to never be violent towards his own children, but that didn't work out in practice. Later, once his oldest children were old enough to start getting themselves into trouble, Julian would succumb to the same actions that had once terrorized him as a child. He'd beat them. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, Richard's older brother, Reuben, had developed a glue-sniffing habit. (laughs) It's a thing. I mean, it was a thing back back in the day. There were chemicals in, like, school glue, even, that uh, would... would... And you guys sniffed glue. Okay, I didn't sniff glue. It was actually an insult when I was in school. Instead of saying, what are you, crazy? We'd be like, you're sniffing glue. You know, it it was just a thing. It was a thing. Yeah, and I never experienced this. We would like put glue on our hands and then like pick and peel it off. And I did the same. I was not a glue sniffer. Okay, um, and I mean, people judge 
every generation for their weird thing. And I think that people forget what they did when they were younger. I I didn't do it. Sniffing nor did. getting high, eating a Tide Pod, but like only a very small amount of people ate a Tide Pod. Sniffing glue sounds a little more common. Also, like... All horrible. Um, You know those whipped cream... Mm-hmm. Cans. Uh, the cans of whipped cream, the pre-made stuff. Um, they used to be a little bit different, and people would... There's a little tiny bit of gas that comes out right before the whipped cream would come out, and that would get you high. So people would actually sniff that and get them just a five-second buzz. Dang. You know, some generations just hypocrites. Not hypocrites. (laughs) Just, you know, I guess I've never been a drug user. I did not sniff glue. I did not even know. Whether from whipped cream can or. (laughs) I didn't know about the whipped cream thing. They called them whippets, apparently. And I would never have known that if it wasn't for Dennis Leary. That's funny. Yeah. That's hilarious. I had no idea. But anyways, (laughs) I digress. So yeah, Ruben had developed this glue sniffing habit. And he was one day arrested in a stolen car. Julian, whose temper had been getting shorter and shorter, beat him in a way that was described as being merciless. Richard's other brother, Robert, also started to experiment with substance abuse. uh, And Julian's disciplining of his children started to edge into abuse. Richard, who, like I said, was the youngest, witnessed a lot of what was going on in the house and was said to have been deathly frightened of his father. And just an add-on, because I'll be doing my episode on Richard's cousin next chapter. Richard would have been also at least smoking weed at the time where he was like around the age of 12, 13. Yeah, I think my research showed that he started smoking weed when he was 10. Wow, 10. That's young. Holy... So maybe he was also getting in trouble. Oh, I suspect he would have been. So but very scared. Maybe he was. Maybe he got his beating once too. Oh, I'm sure he did. Anyways, at the age of two, Richard had a dresser fall on top of him, knocking him unconscious. He suffered a deep cut on his forehead, and the scar remained visible as an adult. And then at the age of five, he was knocked unconscious by a swing in the park playground. His parents were exposed to nuclear radiation. The U.S. government were conducting nuclear bomb tests near where they lived. At that time, little was known or publicized about the detrimental effects of close proximity to this. But there was a high rate of birth defects in the area. (laughs) That's so crazy. Like the fact that she was having babies and they were having issues. Mm -hmm. Like I would have sued or something. I don't know. And also while pregnant with Richard Mercedes, which is Richard's mom, um, she got a job mixing pigments and chemicals in a factory. It wasn't known then how toxic that could be, and she started experiencing dizzy spells. She left the job five months into the pregnancy after being warned that there may have been a risk to her unborn child. See? Sue, get that bag. That is absolutely ridiculous. Wow. Uh, Richard suffered with epilepsy when he was younger, experiencing between one and two dozen seizures, which are now called absence seizures, until his early teens. At the age of seven, Richard would talk of having vivid dreams about monsters and of seeing them running around the garden, and it obviously frightened him. It was later said that these visions and dreams may have been part of his seizures. 
By the time he turned 12, Richard's older brothers had moved out of the house. It was around this time that his cousin Miguel, who is also known as Mike, and we will be calling him Mike, returned from the Vietnam War, uh, providing Richard with someone to look up to. Mike would share horrifying and violent stories with Richard from his time in Vietnam. Mike would also brag about the women he had raped, showing graphic Polaroid photos of his victims. And we will get more into that on the next chapter. Yeah, I'm not going to go too terribly into um, everything that Mike did. And yeah, like there's Richard. lots of information about Vietnam. Right. But yeah, you're going to go into what affected what Richard. could have affected. It affected him. <laughs> Obviously, like in his early teens, Richard witnessed Mike kill his own wife, Jessie, by shooting her in the face at point blank range right in front of Richard. Mike told Richard not to tell anyone what he'd seen, which he didn't, but instead he became more withdrawn and started stealing and getting high a lot more. Like I said, uh, Richard first started smoking weed at age 10. Horrible. So Mike was found not guilty of Jesse's murder by reason of insanity and was released after four years in a state hospital to once again become an influence in Richard's life. However, a few months later, uh, Richard moved in with his sister, Ruth, and her husband, Roberto. But Roberto was a peeping Tom and would take Richard along with him on his after dark acts. acts. Which is crazy because everything that I've seen, it's like, okay, he was going to live with his sister and things were going to get better. She said, hey, I know things aren't good at home. I know what it's like to live with dad and come stay with me and everything will start to be a little bit better for you. And in turn... It ended up having a huge impact on his life because Roberto ended up showing him how to be sneaky and, you know, blend in with the dark. And, like, these are the things that I read that he actually taught him how to do. It's crazy. Roberto or Mike? Roberto. Okay. Also spent some time yeah. training this training dude yeah. to become the Night Stalker. Yeah, it's crazy that... The, the circumstances that led up to what influenced this guy as a child. And I don't know if I, I mean, obviously, I think, in my opinion, he's obviously a psychopath or a sociopath. But I don't know that I'd go so far as to say um, schizophrenic or anything Me like neither. that. Me neither. And I don't even think he's as much as a psychopath as you would want to believe. The fact is, is that he had influences in his life that taught him that killing and raping women and people made you feel godlike that's right so and mike says that that's all very interesting um i also read that at one time for punishment richard's dad took him to a graveyard and chained him up and made him stay there overnight so richard became more of an outcast he would often escape his family home by heading out and even sleeping in the local graveyard this was where he went for escape. Um, he seldom bathed or brushed his teeth, and Gross. he was very unkept. Ew. Um, some report that he smelled terrible most of the time. And then girls just ate it up. They're like, nom, 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 I can bathe him. <laughs> Later. Like, I, don't know, I don't know how they felt about him as a teenager, but when oh. he was a infamous serial killer, <laughs> women were falling at his feet. So at 17, Richard was ready to turn his twisted fantasies into reality while he was still in school. He got a job at the Holiday Inn where he, um, he was given a pass key to all the rooms. 
Um, he would break into hotel rooms and steal from guests and even one time attempted to rape one of them. The lady's husband was away. He was just out parking the car because they had just checked in. Richard would go into the room um, that they just moved into and started to try to rape the wife. Uh, the husband came in, sees what's going on, and basically beat Richard bloody. The couple says that they're just here for a vacation. They're from out of town. And on holiday, they don't want to press charges. So that was a lucky escape for Richard. Which is so crazy. It's like, okay, I hope that people have a better um, outlook at that kind of stuff. Where it's like, you may not want to get into it. You're on vacation. But now we understand that. It's not always just about us. It's about making sure that that kind of thing doesn't happen again. Mm -hmm. And that's why you have to kind of find that bravery to do the right thing and talk to the police. And I really hope he was fired after that. Actually, this situation did not get Richard fired, but um, he was fired afterwards for attempting to molest two children in an elevator. Wow. 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 What a piece of shit. Yeah. So, obviously, sleeping in graveyards, he's increasingly kind of going over to the dark side. And the things that started to appeal to him are all the things that people at that time would shy away from, especially, um, like I said, at that time, like, he was reading Anton LaVey books, uh, the Satanic Bible. He became involved in devil worship, and um, it was very scary stuff back then. Not so much now, but back then it was very scary. Yeah. Yeah. I think now it's more, I guess, socially acceptable to have an alternative spiritualism. Mm -hmm. Depending on how you're practicing it, for sure. Mm -hmm. But yeah, no, I get what you're saying. So in 1982, Richard decides to leave El Paso and he moves to California. On April 4th, 1984, Richard would commit his first known murder, though he was never charged or confessed to the killing. Richard's first known murder happens to nine-year-old Mei Lung, a Chinese-American girl. She's murdered in the basement of the San Francisco Hotel where Richard was living. She is raped and stabbed to death before Richard hangs her body from a pipe. Wow. It's not initially identified as being part of his crime spree. However, in 2009, his DNA matched a sample obtained at the crime scene. So is that one of the murders that he was convicted of no 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 okay. he was never charged with even that. later on in even trial when they had evidence wow no just identified as the perpetrator okay I, I mean by 2009 obviously he was handed down 19 death sentences so he wasn't going anywhere no totally i just and a lot of I'm times i think it's included. just the it's just the confirmation that this is the guy who killed your child Mm -hmm. um, and he's already on death row would be enough for um, survivors to say, okay, now I know for sure he's the guy that did it. He's already serving a death sentence punishment. On June 28, 1984, Jenny Vinko, uh, who was 79 years old, was found murdered in her L.A. apartment. And the following day, her son Jack visited his mother's apartment. He noticed a window screen missing and the front door unlocked and his mother's belongings scattered around the home. He then found his 79-year-old mother's body. Jenny's throat had been slashed and she was nearly decapitated. She had been stabbed repeatedly. Later, it was found that Richard's fingerprint was found on the screen that he had removed to enter the apartment. 
So February and March 1985, there were a series of child abductions in Montebello, Monterey Park, and Glasso Park. All of the children were sexually assaulted and then abandoned. One of these children was a six-year-old girl who I'm not going to name here. She and the other children provided police with a description of their kidnapper that raised alarms and inspired a hunch by one of the main homicide detectives on the Night Stalker case. Mm -hmm. Both the detective and the abducted children described their attacker as tall and light-skinned with brown-stained teeth, a pungent odor, and a specific style of jacket. A shoe print found at one of the abduction sites was later matched, though, to that same shoe print found at some of the Night Stalker crime scenes. This information, along with the description and later eyewitness confirmation, identified Richard Ramirez as the attacker of these children, but he was never tried on these assaults. So crazy. Mm -hmm. On March 17, 1985, Richard attacks Maria Hernandez. She was 22 years old. Um, he shoots her in the face, but she survives after a bullet ricochets off a set of keys. Her roommate, Dale Okazaki, is also fatally shot in the head by Richard. An hour later, Richard heads to Monterey Park where he shoots Veronica Yu twice after pulling her out of her car. The media calls Richard the walk-in killer and the valley intruder at this point. Shell casings and shoe print impressions were taken from both of these crime scenes. On March 27, 1985, uh, Richard enters a Whittier, California home that he had previously burglarized. He fatally shoots Vincent Zazara, who is 64 years old, in the head while he was asleep. His wife, Maxine, who is 44 years old, wakes up from the gunshot. Richard beats her and searches the room for valuables. Maxine escapes the binds and grabs a gun that isn't loaded. Richard shoots her three times and then stabs her, gouges her eyes out, puts them in a jewelry box, and leaves with the jewelry box. So gross. Twisted. He leaves footprints in the flower beds, a shoe print from a man's Avia sneaker. And bullets at this scene match those from his previous attacks. On May 14, 1985, Richard breaks into Bill and Lillian Doy's home in Monterey Park. He shoots Bill in the face, beats him unconscious, and then binds Lillian, searches their home for valuables, brutally rapes her and bill dies at the hospital but lillian survives which is just ugh, i can't even imagine wow go on so may 25th 1985 richard drives a stolen car to monrovia california where he breaks into the home of mabel bell who is 83 and florence lang who is 81 he attacks lang with a hammer binds her in the bedroom and then binds and attacks mabel he uses Mabel's lipstick to draw a pentagram on her body and on the walls of both of their bedrooms after raping Mabel. The women are found two days later alive, but eventually Mabel dies due to her injuries at age 83. That is terrible. May 30th, 1985, Richard drives the stolen cart to Burbank and breaks into Carol Kai's home. He binds Carol and her son, who's 11, then has the son point out where valuables are. He rapes Carol and then ties her son up to her and then flees the home. Messed up. So messed up. Horrible. Doesn't just tie her up and him up. Ties them together after he rapes her. Like, yeah. And beats. Sadistic. Like she's beaten and brutally raped and now she's going to have to be. I mean, it's just terrible. Horrible. 
July 2nd, 1985, Richard drives the stolen car to Arcadia, California, to Mary Louise Cannon's home. He knocks her out with a lamp and stabs her with a knife from her kitchen. Um, she is found dead. On July 5th, 1985, Richard heads to Sierra Madre, California, where he attacks Whitney Bennett, who is 16 years old, with a tire iron as she sleeps. He then tries to strangle her with a telephone cord, but the cord sparks and Bennett begins to breathe. Richard flees, believing that Jesus saved her, and Bennett survived the attack. Wow. July 7th, 1985, Richard breaks into Joyce Lucille Nelson's Monterey Park home. He burglarized her home and then beat her to death, leaving a shoe print on her face. He then enters Sophie Dickman's home, handcuffs her at gunpoint, tries to rape her, and steals her jewelry. He tells her to swear on Satan that he stole everything of value in her home. The day after the Nelson murder, the police finally got their hands on the stolen Toyota, but they weren't able to recover any fingerprints. Still, there was one clue left inside, a business card for a local dentist in Chinatown. Police paid a visit to the dentist's office and discovered that their suspect had just visited five days earlier, not long before the Bennett, Nelson, and Dickman attacks. Richard was using the alias Richard Mena and a fake address. The dentist gave the police x-ray scans that showed the impacted tooth. Uh, police efforts to intercept the killer at the dentist office were unsuccessful. Now, do you think that the police, like, needed a warrant to get the x-ray scans? You know, nowadays, I don't think nowadays, that would fly. Nowadays, they probably would, but uh, like, warrant, I don't yeah. know what the law was like they in California. They probably just walked in and, and were like, give me that. And we're like, okay. We think this guy is a murderer. Can we have that? <laughs> yeah. They probably wouldn't fly nowadays, but. Mm -hmm. um, so on July 20th, 1985, Richard buys a machete and drives a different stolen vehicle to Glendale, California. He enters Leela and Maxon Needing's home, kills them both with the machete and a gun, and burglarizes their home. He then drives to Sun Valley, breaks into the Covenant home, and fatally shoots the husband. His wife and son were both sexually assaulted, but left alive. Um, Richard forces the wife to point out valuables in the home, and he also forces her to swear to Satan that she isn't hiding any money. So the gun used in the Needing murders matched the one used in the Dale Okazaki case back in March. Also, two more Avia prints were found at the Sun Valley crime scene. At this point, police released a composite drawing of the suspect. I want to see that drawing. <laughs> That's pretty good, <laughs> I guess. Or from a terrified lady? I mean, it's not, I'm not judging the terrified lady. I'm judging the person who drew this horrendous drawing. <laughs> <laughs> also though off to the side of this drawing is his I'm sorry teeth the teeth. Horrendous. The description of the teeth like I'm, I'm instantly crying it's so funny to me I'm trying to hold it in that's really funny what do tell <laughs> just teeth <laughs> oh. we can actually you should take a screenshot of that and we'll put it in the show notes picture okay I'm crying I'll save it. Ooh. It's a little funny. I don't know why I find that <coughs> so funny. Just nasty teeth. <laughs> like a drawing of nasty teeth. Ooh. Like I just imagine him <coughs> seeing it and being like, Someone hey. <laughs> <laughs> My chair is creaking. Ooh. That's funny. 
Oh, instant tears. It's so funny. <sighs> August 6, 1985, Richard breaks into Chris and Virginia Peterson's home. He shoots Virginia in the face and then shoots Chris in the neck and tries to flee the scene. Chris fights back, though, but Richard still manages to escape. It was around this time that the L.A. Herald Examiner dubbed the killer the Night Stalker, and that's the name that stuck. August 8, 1985, Richard breaks into Sakina and Elias Abawath's home. He fatally shoots Elias, who is sleeping, and then handcuffs, beats, and rapes Sakina while demanding their jewelry. He ties up and assaults their three-year-old son. Shell casings at the scene match the ones found at the Northbridge shooting. On August 18th, 1985, um, by this point, Richard has left Los Angeles. Um, he traveled to the San Francisco Bay Area. He breaks into Barbara and Peter Pan's home. Peter Pan? Yeah, his name is Peter Pan. Peter Pan? Yeah. So he shoots Peter Pan in the head. Oh my God. And then beats and rapes Barbara before fatally shooting her. He uses lipstick to draw a pentagram and write Jack the Knife on a bedroom wall. I wonder if he knew that his name was Peter Pan and he was like, you're Peter Pan and I'm Jack the Knife. I don't know. Maybe he had heard they were calling him the Night Stalker. Maybe he didn't like that and he was trying to give himself a moniker or... Trash. A trash moniker. Yeah, Jack the Knife. Like, what is that? Maybe he was talking about Jack the Ripper. Like, who knows what his actual motive was for writing that in lipstick. Jack the Ass. <laughs> Am mm -hmm. I right? Weird. I'm right. Okay. So Glendale police asked for ballistics information on the shell casings at the scene. And as it turned out, the bullets matched the ones found at the Northridge and Diamond Bar attacks. Then the mayor of San Francisco, Diane Feinstein gave a press conference shortly after the Pan murders. She publicly revealed for the first time that police had tied the cases together with shell casings and the Avia shoe print. This enraged investigators because the key piece of evidence would now be known to the killer. Richard later confirmed that as soon as he saw the press conference, he tossed his shoes into the bay. August 25, 1985, Richard drives to Mission Viejo in a stolen orange Toyota. James Romero Jr.'s 13-year-old son hears Richard outside their home and wakes up his parents. Richard flees, but the family manages to glimpse the color and make of his car, as well as part of the license plate number. Richard then breaks into Bill Carnes and Inez Erickson's home. He shoots Carnes three times in the head and tells Erickson he is the Night Stalker and that she must swear to love Satan. After raping her, he tells her, tell them the Night Stalker was here. Erickson later gave officials a description of Richard, and they are able to find the stolen car in Los Angeles. There's a single fingerprint on the mirror that matches Richard's. So with the trail of clues, also involving a stolen bracelet with the owner's social security number etched into it, this led them to a man named Armando Rodriguez, a friend to Ramirez. Armando was the one who told them the Night Stalker's name was Richard Ramirez. Police finally had a name, and there were eight people named Richard Ramirez with fingerprints in the police's records, and one was a perfect match. Richard had previously been booked for Grand Theft Auto and some petty theft, so police took this 1984 booking photo to the informant in San Francisco. He identified the man in the photo as Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker. 
Police released the name and photo to the media, and by the next morning, Richard Ramirez was on the front page of the L.A. Herald Examiner, and his name and photo were all over the TV news. So on August 30th, Richard took a bus to Tucson, Arizona to visit his brother, and then on the 31st, he returned to California. His mugshot was all over the newspapers, which he notices immediately. He attempts to carjack a woman's vehicle, but a group of bystanders pursue him. It was actually the husband of the woman who Richard had just tried to carjack, who heard the commotion outside and chased Richard down, hit him over the head with a pipe. Um, neighbors who also heard the woman yelling, El Diablo the Killer, a dozen or more citizens came out and proceeded to beat Richard into submission. They easily overpowered and detained Richard until the police arrived. When they did show up, Richard said he was glad to see them. He thought these people were going to kill him. Perfect example of fuck around and sometimes you're going to find out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> so July 1988, Richard's first court appearance um, during jury selection. At his first appearance, uh, Richard yells, Hail Satan, and holds up his hand showing a pentagram that he had written on his uh, palm, twisted. You really just wanted to be viewed as shock like, value. That and like, like he would mean mug the cameras. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He was so strong, obviously, but he was in reality he was a skeleton. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> spooky, spooky skeleton. So on August fourteenth, nineteen eighty-eight, uh, Richard's trial is delayed because one of the jurors is a no-show. The juror is later found shot and killed in her apartment, and the jury wonders if Richard is behind the death. Um, it's later determined that her boyfriend killed her and then committed suicide. Which is a crazy coincidence. Crazy coincidence. Um, throughout this trial, groupies and fans that were made up primarily of young women sat in the gallery admiring Richard. He would often look back and smile at them, waving and flirting every chance he got. He would dress in dark suits or his dark prison jumpsuit. Um, but he was wearing sunglasses in court, and some people were very attracted to him. There's a word for this. It's a mental illness for sure. Um, I think we actually did look up that. We did. It's called um, hypersophilia, and that is a paraphilia involving sexual interest in and attraction to those who commit crimes. And I think that that's a little bit broad because there's a big difference of being attracted to somebody who robs a bank and being attracted to somebody who just rapes mm, and kills and molests and murders everybody and molests everybody. And but I don't. I'm not even fully convinced that like all of these people have that um, mental illness. Mm. I just think that girls are attracted to the bad boy and they think that I can fix him. All he needs is love. I guess it almost feels too common for it to be a mental illness, but you know what? Mental illness is pretty common, so Mm -hmm. maybe it is. So also in the 80s, these serial killers were interviewed constantly by the news media and even daytime talk shows. Guys like Geraldo and Maury Povich, Donahue, Sally Jesse Raphael would have these murderers on their shows via video call, which at the time was huge. It was very high tech. Um, I remember this. It was like... It was like the thing to see if you were into that kind of thing, which my mother was, so I really didn't have a choice. But um, today, unless interviews are released by law enforcement, the public doesn't get the same level of access to these killers that we used to see. These interviews from the 80s are all over YouTube, so if you're interested in this stuff, head over there and watch some. They're chilling, to say the least. 
Um, let's play this clip now where Richard is on the Maury Povich show and you'll see it's all just about the showboating. And I think most humans have in them the capacity to, co to commit murder. Uh, it is no, not because... No, we don't, Richard. Uh, they, they choose not to, not because they are morally superior as they so commonly claim, but because they are imprisoned in a web of responsibilities, commitments, no, beliefs and sentiments. Richard. And that would render murder an absurd gamble or ridiculous well, self-destruction. So on September 20th, 1989, um, Richard Ramirez was found guilty on all charges. He's convicted of 13 counts of murder, 5 attempted murders, 11 sexual assaults, and 14 burglaries. He was sentenced to 19 death penalties. That's a lot. Crazy. How many times are we going to kill him? Right. And it blows me away that 19 death sentences, he still sat on death row and didn't even die from execution. Yeah. Um, in 1996, Richard married longtime fan Doreen Loy at San Quentin Prison in California. Doreen advocated and believed Richard was innocent, and that was until she divorced him in 2009 when his DNA was matched to samples collected at the 1994 San Francisco murder scene of the little girl. So... She ended up divorcing him. And on June 7th, 2013, Richard died at age 53 from complications of B-cell lymphoma at the hospital in Greenbrae, California. And man, I hope he suffered with that illness. Uh, he, he was on death row for way too long. I wonder if while he started suffering with B-cell lymphoma, if he ended up going to the hospital instead of living out like all the months in prison because I really hope he didn't get the care of at a hospital. Mm -hmm. I know that that information is somewhat out there. I So there was a made for TV, like one of these lifetime movies made about Richard Ramirez. Um, I got about halfway through it and I turned it off, but I had seen clips of like his deathbed. Um, somebody was, in comforting him at his deathbed and supposedly he made confessions or whatever it seemed a little outlandish to me and it didn't mm -hmm. kind of the the, the made for tv movie didn't align with the facts that had been released so I, I didn't give it much attention yeah so it's quite possible because he was in a hospital bed he was allowed having visitors at the end i've seen that like in yeah. other and honestly cases. i found it terribly that that made for tv movie was it was not good yeah in my opinion there, there have definitely been other criminals who, because a illness, like, came in and they were bedridden and they needed to be in hospital, they ended up actually getting a pretty good send-off yeah. to their pathetic life. Yeah. No well, offense, I guess. No honestly, offense. he's finally, he's truly where he belongs now. Um, so, yeah. it's a good resolution to this case. It took far too long, but it is resolved. So I'm going to close the book on this story. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and share with your friends. If you don't mind giving us a five-star rating, it will help our show grow. You can also find us on Facebook at True Crime Story Podcast, where the discussion can continue. Also, subscribe to our YouTube channel, True Crime Story Podcast. If you wish to contact us, you may do so via email at truecrimestorypod at gmail.com. I'm Bree. And I'm Char. And we'll see you on the next chapter. Bye. Bye.